All right, well, we're back to the timeline of history. We'll uh, move a little farther tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this look into your story we call history. Thank you, Father, that you give us, Lord, a record of all that you are doing. Lord, to help us learn, to equip us, Lord, as we look forward to build your kingdom, to see your glory, your glorious name made known in all the earth. Help us, Father, be a people who are wise and learn wisdom from the past to apply it for our own day, today, and for the future. We ask this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, it's been a little while since we were together. And um, I don't, I, I think we talked about the investiture controversy the last time we were together. That's basically where the... Um, the emperor or the king would invest authority to bishops. Uh, and remember bishops then, so this controversy came to full bloom in 1076. And bishops back then were not necessarily appointed to be bishops because they were spiritual men who had all been to seminary and learned um, theology and spiritual truths. Bishops were appointed by kings, by emperors, because they were powerful men. They were men who had wealth. They were men who had the resources of people who could be conscripted into an army to fight on behalf of a king or an emperor against his enemies. And so bishops uh, were not what we might think of them today in the church. As a result of this, Pope Gregory VII wanted to bring reform to the church, so he wanted to take that power away from kings and emperors and make sure that bishops, men who were appointed, were actually qualified churchmen, not just powerful lords who uh, could help an emperor or a king. Uh, that was pretty controversial. Nothing was really solved, and it continued to be an issue um, and will continue to be an issue as we go through the timeline 1099, 1096, 1099, there was a crusade, early crusade in 1096 that really is not counted. It was so, so, such a failure. But the first crusade in 1099 um, was launched in earnest and they did actually take back Jerusalem and much of the Holy Land uh, from the Muslims. Um, it was the first crusade. There were many following, and we're not going to look at all of them. We'll just look at some of them. Um, there was another crusade launched uh, in 1144 because Jerusalem was under, under attack, under pressure by the Muslims who were working to take the Holy Land back from the Christians. We talked about the Petrobrusians and the Waldensians. 
So these were the followers of Peter Bruce and Peter Waldo. Both were men uh, in France. Uh, Peter Bruce was actually a Catholic priest who actually taught the Bible and taught his people to read and study the Bible if they could. Remember, there weren't Bibles for people to just have. Um, and so most people didn't have a Bible unless they were wealthy and they happened to be able to be literate and could read. So Peter Bruce taught his people the Bible, preached from the Bible and encouraged them. Uh, Peter Waldo was a merchant and remember he was wealthy, he was literate and he took his wealth to have Bibles copied by hand and then the scriptures distributed. Um, both of these movements became substantial in France and the uh, popes became, um, took notice of it. The French um, crown took notice of it because the French crown and the, and the pope were closely tied together. Uh, and both the Petrobrusians and the Waldensians were teaching contrary to Catholic doctrine because both of them taught that the scripture was the final authority and it was what men should look to and that Christ is our head and not a pope. Uh, and even though these people were Catholic, their loyalty was first to the scripture and to the Lord. In 1181, Pope Lucius III issued a decree declaring that all non-Catholic Christians are under a curse. This obvious would have, put, have included the uh, followers of Peter Bruce and Peter Waldo. Finally, in 1187, the Muslims under Saladin, the Egyptian um, sultan, retake Jerusalem from the Christians and basically retake the Holy Land. This prompts the Third Crusade. Uh, which in effect attempted to recover Jerusalem. Um, this crusade involved a king of England. There were three rulers, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of France, and the King of Eng England were the three uh, Christian rulers who led armies in this third crusade. King Richard of England, um, we know him uh, by another name. Anyone know what, what his nickname was? What was it, Ephraim? Richard the Lionhearted. If you've ever seen the movie Robin Hood, um, King Richard, this is the King Richard of Robin Hood fame. Uh, I'm not going to talk about Robin Hood, but in my history class, we actually have a lesson on Robin Hood because... There are lots of legends surrounding Robin Hood, but Robin of Loxley was, um, was a real person. There's a grave marker in England that marks his grave and, and has his name upon it. Um, but King Richard led, uh, led the crusade there. He did have a brother, uh, John, who eventually became King John. And there really was conflict between King Richard and King John. 
their, um, their mother, Evelyn of Aquitaine, who married eventually King Henry of England, she was the mother of these two English sons who both became kings. Richard was her favorite son. He was the good son. John was the bad son. He was more like his father. Um, but Richard helped lead the third crusade um, to attempt to take, to get Jerusalem back. It was not really successful. There was a treaty made between Richard and, and uh, Saladin. Um, but later on, there would be uh, other crusades and other efforts that would try to um, secure the Holy Land. Uh, we, we know eventually it failed. Um, Islam uh, really took that region over. But there is this, this is the ongoing struggle. The West is trying to take back the Holy Land from the Muslims. Um, and so in the first crusade, when they actually did take Jerusalem, they, took, uh, they put a gold cross upon the Dome of the Rock and declared it a Christian site of worship. When Saladin took Jerusalem in 1187, he took the gold cross down and restored the Dome of the Rock as a mosque, a place of Muslim worship, which it still is today. Um, uh, Richard eventually was actually killed in battle. Um, and as a result of his death, he wasn't killed in the Crusades. He was, was on his, he, he was back, but he, when he was killed, uh, King John uh, took the throne. Um, in 1190, the sale of indulgences begins. So it the sale of indulgences in 1190 becomes uh, an official doctrine of the church, if you will. So I, I mark these things because up until that point, those things didn't exist in the Christian church. <clears throat> and some people may think, some Christians, some Catholics may think that's the way it's always been and that's not the case. And of course, the sale of indulgences was the, <coughs> was the main issue that prompted uh, the Reformation. One of the main issues. So that, uh, that began in earnest in 1190, the sale of indulgences in the Catholic Church. And of course, the point of that was to raise money to build um, the, the, what, what we now know as the Vatican and Vatican City. So St. Peter's Basilica. All those buildings were built in the Vatican complex from money raised by the church through the sale of indulgences. That was a major, major fundraising operation by the church. And it reached its zenith at the time of the Reformation. There was a really a most effective marketing campaign that the church uh, put in play uh, that was raising much money through the sale of indulgences. In 1194, Pope Celestine III orders the destruction of non-Catholic Christians in Spain. 
So if you weren't a Catholic, your death was ordered. In uh, 1096, Oxford University was established as the first English-speaking university in the world, 1096. And of course, Oxford is still um, what, what many would, would call a world-class uh, university. 1098, Pope Innocent III uh, organized the Inquisition into a permanent institution. So um, this, for instance, calling all non-Christians cursed. You know, the previous pope, Pope Lucius III, Pope Celestine III, ordering the destruction of Christians in Spain. So we are, at this point, we are uh, 400 years, we're, we're 300, a good 300 years, 300 plus years um, before we get to the, uh, 400 years before we get to the Reformation. But what you're seeing through these, um, the establishment of the Inquisition, the declaration that all non-Christians are under a curse, uh, the declaration that all non-Christians should be destroyed in Spain. The reason these things are happening is because of people like Peter Bruce, Peter Waldo. They're not the only ones. There were believers in southern France um, who basically held the same doctrines or the same beliefs as the reformers did leading into the 16th century, 14th and, or the 15th and 16th centuries. Uh, they're just not as well known, and the Catholic Church was effective in, in squashing these movements. So it was, what's that, what's that, uh, what's that game, you know, whack-a-mole, you know, where you, things pop up? That's kind of what's happening at this time. These pockets of reform were popping up. And so people were saying, hey, the Bible doesn't teach this. Uh, why are we following this when this is what the Bible says? And as those pockets of resistance would pop up and become movements of any substantial size, the church would come in and, and squash them. Uh, so, for instance, um, the... the establishment of the Inquisition as a permanent institution in 1198. And the whole purpose of the Inquisition was to identify heretics and then uh, get them to recant, punish them until they do recant, or kill them and get rid of them so that their heresy doesn't spread. <clears throat> in 1200 to 1204, the Fourth Crusade was... Um, initiated, and this was really a, a disastrous crusade because they never made it to the Holy Land. They basically, what they did in the Fourth Crusade is they ended up going to Constantinople and looting and raping and pillaging the city of Constantinople. 
which was the seat of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Well, if you remember in 1054, in 1054, there was what's called the Great Schism. <clears throat> and when the Great Schism happened in 1054, the Western Church, the Pope declared the Eastern Orthodox Church anathema. Basically, they didn't recognize them as even being Christian. They were, they were cursed. And so when the Fourth Crusade happened, because these were the Eastern Christians, and they weren't the Western Christians, they weren't the Roman Church, it was the Eastern Orthodox Church, they just decided they would raid Constantinople. And so uh, where, when we get to the First Crusade and, and they're trying to all work together to retake the Holy Land, by the Fourth Crusade, the Western Church, the Roman Church, counts the Eastern Church as anathema and they actually raid the seat of the Eastern Church. Um, and those two branches have not, I mean, they're, they're basically still today. I know the popes, uh, well, for instance, in, um, in 1209, again, Pope Innocent III, uh, he initiates a crusade against, some say it was against the Waldensians. It really, the Waldensians, uh, it, it did include the Waldensians. There was another group um, called the Cathars. And, and they were really, in southern France, the, they, were, they were a heretical group. So their beliefs were a little more Gnostic. Um, some of their followers, there was another group, and I can't remember, I never can remember how to say their name. Um, it's the, um, hold on, I'll find it. They're called the Albigensians, the Albigenses, the Albigensians. The Albigensians were a group, again, in southern France um, who had more reformed views. So a lot of these kind of get lumped together because the Petrobrusians and the Waldensians were all French, but the Petrobrusians and Waldensians were more orthodox in their belief. The, the Cathars and the Abigensians had some more Gnostic-type beliefs, but they adhered to the Bible. They, were, they didn't believe the sacraments saved you. They believed only Christ could save you. They were very ascetic in their beliefs, so they, they, they shunned you know, wealth. They embraced poverty. Um, they believed that the flesh and... Um, the things of this world were not to be desired. You kind of had a mixed bag down there. So there were some groups down there who were truly heretical, but there were also groups down there who were truly biblical and trying to bring reform to the church. Well, in 1209, there was a crusade instigated against these uh, people in southern France. And so at that time... Though there was, remember, 
a, a king in France. How did the king rule his region? He had lords. Remember, bishops were basically lords. And these lords, these barons, were given lands to rule over to help the king gain control. At that time, France was kind of divided into a northern and a southern region in terms of political alliances. So there was a state in southern France called Aquitaine or Navarre. And uh, they were very friendly to the Protestants. They were very friendly. There are no Protestants at this time. But even during the time of the Reformation, um, Aquitaine and the people of southern France in that region were very friendly to the Protestants. And when we get a few centuries in, we're going to see um, that it cost them dearly. Uh, but even at this time, it's in southern France that the Waldensians and the Petrobrusians and the Carthas or the Cathars and the, the uh, Albigenes people are there. And they are not real, they're not real big on the Pope and they're not real big on the Roman Catholic Church in all of these things that the church is instituting that they believe are not biblical, they're extra biblical. And so the Pope is not happy. It's become a big enough movement that now he thinks he's got to do something. And so the Pope, he institutes, he, he calls for a crusade against these people in southern France, these groups in southern France that he considers heretical. And so what the Pope did was promise heaven if you will commit to 40 days and you will come and join the crusade, if you're killed in battle, I promise you, you will go to heaven. Sound familiar? Kind of sounds like what the Muslims do, right? You join my holy war, and that's exactly what the Pope called it, a holy war. If you join this holy war and are killed in battle, I promise you will go to heaven. Well, he's no different than the Muslims who promise uh, paradise to those who join jihad. And this is exactly what happened. And so they go down there and it pits northern France, the lords of northern France against the lords of southern France. And so this struggle begins in 1209 and there were a lot of people killed because simply they were not Roman Catholic or they didn't hear, adhere to Roman Catholic doctrine. They, they adhered to the scripture and not to the doctrine of the church first. And this, this is going to become an ongoing issue. Well, while this is going on um, in France, and you have this persecution of these, of these Christians, of these believers who, who don't want to adhere to strict Catholic doctrine because they believe the church is corrupt in much of its practice. So the, you see that the Reformation didn't begin in 1500 or 1517. This is the root of the Reformation. And really, if the Catholic Church had not been successful in suppressing these movements in France, uh, the Reformation could have started earlier in France instead of starting in Germany. 
But remember whose story it is. This is God's story. So in his story, uh, though, we see the roots of Reformation here. And, and the church was successful in maybe stamping out political leaders and political power who supported these groups. But the beliefs of these people, they, they were not effective in completely erasing them. And so this is how we get to a reformation. Uh, this is a grassroots movement of embracing the scripture and embracing what the Bible says over what the Pope says or what the church says. Um, in 1209 through 1368, just to move to a different part of the world, um, the Mongol rule of China began. So uh, Genghis Khan comes into power in 1206 in Mongolia and he begins to conquer territory. In 1209, he begins to conquer territory in China. And so you have different dynasties that have ruled different regions uh, around China. And um, from 1209, by 1279, Genghis Khan has taken over China. He's conquered all the different pockets of resistance from the different uh, families and dynasties. Uh, and in 1279, he rules China and he rules Tibet. And, and those countries are under Mongol rule. And so beginning in 1209 and lasting until 1368, uh, the, the Khan dynasty rules China. Um, he, he may have been able to rule it longer. Uh, he did a lot of really good things. But one thing that the Mongols did is they never, they separated themselves. They did not allow themselves to, um, to mingle with the Chinese people. So they didn't intermarry with the Chinese they forced Chinese men to dress and wear their hair as Mongols. So they didn't let the Chinese be Chinese. So as they ruled China, they tried to basically erase the national identity of the Chinese and make the Chinese more Mongol in, in their culture. And that created resistance. And eventually, by 1368, China was able to, the Chinese were able to take control of China again. This is the first time, and I believe the only time, that China was ever ruled by anyone other than Chinese, the Chinese. Um, in 1209, the Order of St. Francis was founded. So, um, Francis, um, basically the order of St. Francis, the Franciscans uh, embraced poverty. They took vows of poverty and they, they lived to minister to the poor uh, in the most destitute of, of our society. Um, then in 1212... The second order of St. Francis was established, which was basically the Sisters of St. 
is it St. Clair or St. Clara? Claire. Uh, so the, the first order of St. Francis was for monks. The second order was for nuns. Uh, and they, they ministered to, to the poor. In 1216, there was another order that was established. It was the Dominican order. It was founded in 1216. Uh, and the Dominicans were very similar to the Franciscans. They also took a vow of poverty. But there was a major difference between Franciscans and Dominicans. Uh, whereas the Franciscans, if you were in the order of St. Francis, you were forbidden to continue your education. They did not allow those who were in the order to to. to pursue higher education. We'll see later on in history, there are famous people, famous scientists and inventors who were in the order of St. Francis who, with the blessing of the Pope, had to do their work in secret because if the order of St. Francis would have found out what they were doing, they would have been kicked out. Um, the Dominicans, on the other hand, embraced and encouraged Continuing education. Um, Dave, you got any thoughts about the Franciscans? Any? Dave knows a lot more about the Franciscans than I do. Any, any thoughts? Anything about the Franciscans? Any interesting tidbits? They were brutal on each other. Right. They didn't. So, a very hard life. Very hard life. One of the most famous Dominican monks was Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, yeah. Thomas Aquinas. There's a lot of famous... Um, you know, we, we hear a lot about a lot of people in history, and sometimes we don't realize... You know, they were members of these orders. Um, and th because they're known maybe for, you know, writings or scientific achievements, we don't know them as men who took vows, became monks, and, you know, were committed to these uh, religious orders. Um, in 2000, I'm um, 2012. In 1212, another crusade was launched. It's called the Children's Crusade. Also under, um, during the time of Pope Innocent. So the Children's Crusade is, a, is another tragic story. So there was a German youth by the name of Nicholas. He was about 12 years old, and he believed that God called him to lead uh, children to take back the Holy Land. And um, <clears throat> he eventually is able to, the word gets back to the Pope. Uh, it becomes such a... Um, such a movement that Pope Innocent III gives his blessing and his support for this children's crusade. And Nicholas leads over 30,000 children 
on this crusade to take back the Holy Land. So Nicholas is from Germany, so you can picture this. This, is, this would be children. So Nicholas is like 12 years old. I mean, think about our kids. And they are coming from all parts of Europe, walking to the Holy Land. And when they get to, uh, when they get to the coast, two ship owners tell the children that they will give them rides on their ships to the Holy Land. And they load thousands of these young children up in seven ships. And of course, these two ship owners have no intention of sending these kids on a crusade. They get them in their ships and they're taking them to North Africa to sell them into slavery to the, to the Muslims. Uh, two of the ships sink on the way, killing everyone. The other ships land and they sell all the children on those ships into slavery. Uh, and according to legend or history, there was only ever one of the child, children uh, that went on this crusade that was ever heard from again by anyone back in Europe. And it was after he spent 18 years in captivity uh, to the Muslims. And he somehow made his escape and made back to Europe. Um, all the rest of them never, never heard from again. It was disastrous. Is that where some people think the legend of the Pied Piper came from, or some other legend? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so, but I'm not sure. Not, I'm not sure. I'll check that out and see. In um, 1215, Pope Innocent III, he did a lot. Pope Innocent did a lot. Uh, he passed a lot of legislation, if you will, or uh, in, in, in the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, he passed the dogma of transubstantiation. So again, the belief that the bread becomes the body of Jesus and the blood becomes, or the wine becomes the blood of Jesus was not something that the church believed from the very beginning. Uh, this was made official doctrine of the Catholic Church in 1215 by Pope Innocent III. At this Fourth Lateran Council, he also forbid translating the Bible into the common languages of the people. And of course, this is a direct result of men like Peter Waldo, who took their own money and paid scribes to copy the scriptures so the scriptures could be distributed. And Peter Waldo wasn't the first one. Uh, remember, it, it, Methodius and Cyril created a whole language from the, from the Slavic people and created the Cyrillic alphabet to, to translate the Bible into the language of the Slavic people. <clears throat> and men had been doing this throughout, but now, <clears throat> in 1215, Pope Innocent III makes it a crime to translate the Bible into 
the common vernacular of the people. Also in 1215, a very famous document was crafted and signed by a famous monarch. Does anyone know what that document might be? Huh? The Magna Carta. Yes. So, my history students, do you know what king signed the Magna Carta? Do you remember? We just talked about him. He worked for the sheriff. I mean, the sheriff of Nottingham worked for him. King John. King John. And how, do you remember how King John signed the Magna Carta? With an X. Because King John was, could not write. Yeah. So the Magna Carta is the Charter of English Liberties granted by King John on June 15th, 1215. Uh, he, he granted this um, Charter of English Liberties under threat of civil war. Um, so at this time, the Magna Carta becomes the official document that basically says kings can't just do what they want to do. And so we go back to this system, the feudal system, which much of Europe was under at this time, but certainly England was under the feudal system. And, and again, how did the king keep control of his kingdom? Well, he did it by investing authority into his lords, his barons, his bishops. And his bishops or his lords in turn controlled these regions. And they had their own armies that they would raise from the people that they ruled. So you had these little fiefdoms that made up the greater kingdom. So England had lords, barons, who, who ruled different regions of the, of the country, all under the authority of the king. And the king would, you know, he'd have his men who pledged allegiance to him. And, you know, if you've seen any of these movies like Braveheart, uh, and, you know, the betrayal took place because... You know, they betrayed, they betrayed William Wallace because King John promised land. I'll give you more land if you'll side with me and betray Wallace. Well, that, this, is what, this is the way the world worked. But King John was so bad. He was just a bad king that even his lords said, we've got to do something with this guy. He wouldn't listen to anybody. He wouldn't listen to the Pope. He wouldn't listen to his lords. He just did what he wanted. Now, they knew that they couldn't just, like, overthrow the king. I mean, they could, but they didn't really want to do that. They didn't want to throw England into a civil war because if they would have attempted to, to literally overthrow the king, well, who's going to become the king? Well, they're going to all fight for power. 
And so what they decided to do was we got to make King John obey his own law. And so they, they draft what we know today as the Magna Carta. And these lords go to him basically and say, listen, if you do not agree to this, your people, we will revolt against you. We, you have got to grant these liberties to your people. There's got to be a rule of law and you yourself must abide by the rules you're making other people abide by. You can't just do what you want and break your own law with no consequence. And so it was, its initial form was issued and signed by the king June 15, 1215. And so by declaring the sovereign to be subject to the rule of law, and so this document declared that the king was subject to the rule of law. This is how the American colonies were able to hold King George responsible because of the Magna Carta, the king was subject to his own laws. And so when the king says, you know, here is my law, here's what I agree to, I put my stamp on it, it becomes the law. The king is obligated to do that. He can't just say, I don't care. I know I said it. I know I made it a law. But I'm the king. I can do what I want. No, you can't, according to the Magna Carta. But it didn't just declare that the sovereign was subject to the rule of law. It documented the liberties that were held by free men. Now, there's interesting people. Remember King Alfred, who helped unite the seven kingdoms of England and helped create more common law among those seven kingdoms. So you didn't just have seven totally different systems of justice. He created a form of what we call common law. Eleanor of Aquitaine, the mother of King Richard and King John, the wife of King Henry of England. Eleanor of Aquitaine actually was the queen of France, and then she got her marriage annulled from the king of France by the pope, and then she married Henry, the king of England, and she became the queen of England. Now, Aquitaine is in southern France, warm, sunny. Uh, she was a very lively person. She believed greatly in chivalry. And, and the knights in southern France were men who were literate, and they wrote poetry, and they wrote love stories. Now, in England, at the same time, knights lived by a code of honor, but knights weren't known in England to write poetry in love stories, they weren't really into that kind of thing. But guess what? When, Evelyn, when Eleanor of Aquitaine becomes the Queen of England and she goes to dark, dreary, cold, damp England, she's like, this place is horrible. So she begins to, to, to bring to the palace and the monarchy some of the things that she was used to in southern France. And she wanted her knights and her troubadours to be men of letters, men who loved literature, men who 
would write poetry, men who could write a good love poem and love story, men who were chivalrous, not just because they lived by a code of honor, but they actually honored women and believed that women as the weaker vessel deserved to be treated accordingly. And so along with that, now King John, uh, well actually King Henry, Eleanor's husband, ends up uh, cheating on her and locking her in a castle for 15 years and he let her out once a year to celebrate Christmas. Um, and and she, she, he did that because she tried to turn John and Richard against their father and take the throne from him. And so Henry locks Eleanor away for 15 years. Uh, Henry dies and Richard lets Eleanor out of her castle prison. And in her 70s, Eleanor was beloved by the English people. And she continued writing and she continued encouraging the people to, um, to be educated, to love literature, to love poetry. Uh, she really wanted to create that, um, that love of learning, love of literature in, among the English people. Uh, and so when she gets out of her castle prison, she travels all around England promoting these ideas, but also promoting that the people need a level of freedom. So she would go around. Uh, Richard, is her son, is king, but her mother has a great influence on King Richard. And so she goes around England when she gets out of her castle prison, and she is helping Richard see where these taxes are oppressive. If we remove these taxes from the people, the people will have much more freedom. They'll be much more motivated to do certain things. And so Eleanor was a huge proponent. She laid a foundation. This is all before the Magna Carta. And it was even the work that Eleanor did as the queen mother as the mother of the king, um, and as the queen, it was the work that she did that even laid foundations for these liberties of the English people that we see begin to take form under these documents like the Magna Carta. And so it held that um, the liberties held by free men uh, provide the foundation for individual rights. So there was this idea of individual rights. Not, not to do away with the monarchy and the right of the king, because there was still the divine right of kings, but the divine right of kings didn't mean that men didn't have individual rights. And so through people like Eleanor of Aquitaine, the queen mother, and through documents like the Magna Carta, these idea, these ideas of men being free and having individual liberties begin to take shape. And it really becomes the foundation of Anglo, the Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-American justice system that we, we have today. Um, the Magna Carta is called the cornerstone of liberty or the basis for democracy in our Western world. There were actually two kings 
of England who were deposed using the Magna Carta. Edward II and Richard II were deposed using this document because they refused to adhere to um, the rules that even the sovereign has to be subject to the rule of law. All right, any thoughts, any thoughts about that? Traitors, yes. Yes. There was a law that said, yes, the king must. Yeah. Right. And, and you go back, you know, like our discussion from Sunday of Romans 13. And this is the point. This is why the Magna Carta was formed. Yes, the king was seen as the divine ruler. So, uh, and we'll see this later on in, with other kings. You know, um, King Louis XIV of France believed he, and he ruled accordingly, that he had the absolute right as the divine authority. He had divine authority on earth from God. And, and he didn't believe that he was subject to anyone except God. Um, and so the, it's, it's a, it's, there's a term for it, and I can't remember what it is right now, but basically it's the absolute authority, the divine right of the king. Now, in all of these monarchies that exist at this time, and the world is ruled by kings, uh, I would submit to you, in a sense, the world is still ruled by kings today. It's just, it's a very different form than what we think of. But as we go through history, you're going to see the evolution. And yes, I'll, I'll use that term because um, our, our societies and cultures have evolved uh, because of the gospel. Men have much more freedom today than they did in centuries past. And so all kings and all peoples of those kings understood that the king ruled by divine right. No one questioned that the king was there because God put him there. And, and there was this high view of God that people had that we've lost today, that we should regain today. Now, obviously, the men who crafted the Magna Carta didn't believe that the king had an authority that superseded God's authority. And this is why this is where they get the principle that even the sovereign has to be subject to the rule of law. Because who establishes the ultimate rule of law? Well, God does. And who is under God's rule? Everyone and everything, including the king, is. And so, yes, this is the mechanism by which now we can hold divinely appointed rulers accountable to the authority that's above them, which is God's authority. And so this idea that, that Christians have, that because of Romans 13, we just, we just have to submit without any questions to the authority of the government, that's, that's not even remotely biblical. 
We don't see it anywhere in Scripture. We don't see it in the New Testament examples when the disciples say to the Jewish leaders, is it right for us to obey man or to obey God? Well, to obey God, right? Well, what the Magna Carta is saying is even kings have to obey the rule of law established by God because all authority comes from God. It's a great point. Yeah. Right. Yes. That is, again, the Bible being applied to law and given to the commoners to protect them. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, of course, King Alfred established the jury system. And King Alfred's reforms uh, in common law, the, all of those were based on the Ten Commandments. He, he used the Scripture to establish his law code. And that tradition continues through our Anglo-Saxon traditions. Uh, absolutely. Anything else there? Okay, that's all I have for you tonight. Any questions? Yes. Basically, all his, his guys that he depended on to keep the country under control, it's like, we're with you, uh, but now we were your allies helping you Rule this nation, keep this nation. If you don't sign this, we withdraw our support of you. I won't, I won't give you my men. I won't give you my army. I won't give you my money. I won't give you my land. I won't, I'm not with you. And so he knew that he could not rule England without these men. He didn't have an army outside of them. He might have had an army but he couldn't wage war against another country if France would have invaded. And so here's what he knew because, you know, England and France are still, they're enemies, basically. There's this tension between them. And so John knew that if France got word that his lords withdrew their support of him and would not raise an army to defend his, his throne, it leaves him open. He knew that he had to, and they understood this. So, yeah, that's how they did it. Under threat, basically. What else? Now, he tries to renege, you know, later on. He signs and tries to renege, but they hold his feet to the fire, and 
And the Magna Carta is still with us today. I mean, it, it, it did what it was supposed to and, and even more laid the foundation of greater documents and greater liberties. All right, anything else?